So I'd like to begin this evening by sharing with you an insight attributed to Viktor Frankl. Some of you will be familiar with his work. He was a Holocaust survivor. And in this quote, he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Quite remarkably, of course, this insight you know, was born in these very tortured, unbearable years, time in a concentration camp. It's uh, also, I think, very much part of this ancient teaching where the Buddha really did teach uh, over and over again that we can find a way to be in this world without being hostage or imprisoned by or defined by the world of conditions that all of us find ourselves in, are living in, moment to moment in our lives. But in that not being governed by or defined by the world of conditions, changing events and experiences, we can also find a way to be fully responsive to that world of conditions. It is evident that we can't choose not to engage with the world, that we can only choose the ways in which we're going to engage, the ways in which we're going to relate to and participate in this world we find ourselves in, in this life that we are part of and that is inextricably part of us with all its joys, all its sorrows, all its losses, all its moments of loveliness. Now in that moment between stimulus and response, there is a space. And I, I think of this space as something akin to a crossroads, standing at a crossroads. And in that crossroads, we have the power we hope we develop the power to choose what road or what pathway we will follow. And whether the road we choose to follow, whether that road is going to hold our growth and our freedom, or hold our sense of imprisonment and suffering and struggle and a turning away from freedom, it's clear to us here, as, you know, as mindfulness develops, it becomes so clear to us that every day, every hour, every moment is bringing endless stimuli. Our sense doors are flooded. Even in this secluded environment, our sense doors are flooded with sights, with sounds, with smells, with taste, with touch, with thoughts, with moods. And have you noticed that much of this we really don't choose? It simply comes our way. You know, we're just standing really in the line of fire. It just comes our way. We don't choose it. In, in our lives, in our days, in our moments, we, we, we encounter small events. And very often, of course, people encounter really life-changing events when, 
You know, their worlds, for whatever reason, and in the face of changing conditions, their world has crumbled or been built again. In that encounter with the world of events and stimuli, of course, there is much that is lovely. There's a lot that's not so lovely. There's that which gladdens our heart, that brings a smile to the heart. And there is that which we find ourselves fearful before or despairing of. But what is very clear is that we are always, in every moment, touching the world and being touched by the world. This this is our interface. Touching and being touched by And we see there's many ways that we respond to this kind of incoming surge of stimuli that sometimes we just feel overwhelmed, like it's just too much to cope with. Sometimes we find ourselves, unfortunately, getting lost, ending up in places that we have no idea how we got there or ending up in places very far from where we would really wish to be. Sometimes we find ourselves, depending on our mood, pursuing that world of stimuli, don't we? We see our eyes are hungry, our minds are hungry, our, our ears are hungry. You know, it's like we're, we're just on the prowl. You know? Have you ever found yourself you know, just standing in front of that notice board? I've seen people standing... <laughs> in front of that notice board, just gazing. Uh, uh, Just gazing. I mean, how many times have we read the schedule? How many times have we read the group list? You know, and and almost a sense in that gaze is there's a sort of longing. It's very poignant sometimes. I see it's kind of poignant. There's a kind of longing that if we if we gaze long enough, you know, perhaps it will become animated, you know, or, you know, or somebody turn on a switch and, you know, there'll be movement and they'll, they'll be like, but we gaze, we gaze forlornly. And sometimes we, we want to, to hide. Sometimes we want to disconnect. You know, sometimes we want to just close our eyes or put our heads under the blanket, that it, it all feels just, you know, just too much to bear sometimes, particularly in the face of the unlovely. We don't have a choice in the stimuli. We begin to sense that our only choice lies in our response. I want to read you something from a, a quite lovely little book called Rowing Without Oars, and the print is too small. Uh, Rowing Without Oars is a, is a journal, was a journal kept by a Swedish television news anchor called Ulla Karin Lindquist in the last several months of her life as she was dying of uh, motor neuron disease. And one of her young sons encouraged her to keep this journal so he might have something to read after she died. And in it, in one passage in it, she says, I'm going to die of ALS if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads I can take. One is to lie down, be bitter, and wait. 
The other is to make something worthwhile of the misfortune, to see it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me, but there is a bright present. Children live like this, only for the present, nothing coming afterwards. Therefore, I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. At times, I think it does indeed seem like a rather banal prescription, you know, in the midst of great difficulties in our lives or in the world to, to live in the immediate present. And, and somehow it, it, it sort of smacks of a kind of eternal now, which we, we know is, is not a truth, you know. And, and it becomes something kind of almost cliched, you know, as if being present is going to be the solution to all things. And I think on one level it really is kind of banal, but on another level, the, the present where we sit right now, where we, where we are right now, this is actually our crossroads. This is the present is our crossroads where actually we, de we determine moment to moment, present moment to present moment, how we're going to live and what kind of values will guide us and what our response can be to this present we find ourselves in. It's, it's at that crossroads that we're asked to discover and to rediscover what we are most deeply committed to and the qualities of heart that we most deeply wish to embody. This word embody is very key in this teaching. It's not about what we think, what we believe, what we subscribe to. You know, it is about how we live, isn't it? And it is really about how we touch the world with our thoughts, our speech, our acts, and what it is that we're, because we are always embodying something. And sometimes we're embodying that which is not so helpful or skillful, and we're learning how to embody and to live that which is helpful and skillful. There's a, another passage from the same book where Gustav, one of her children, she says, Gustav comes and stands beside my desk. Do you write all the time, mummy? It takes such a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, mummy. Every second is a life, I echo. I think there are many moments when we may feel really that there is, there is no pause, no space between stimulus and response. 
don't things just happen so quickly in our minds, in our hearts? You know, the, the mosquito buzzes around us, and without seemingly any volition at all, our hand is, is flailing and swatting, you know? Trying to get rid of the discomfort. You know, the, the, the smell of lunch is in the air and we find ourselves already moving, already salivating, you know, moving towards the dining room. The lovely or, or the difficult thought appears and, and in, in a nanosecond, it seems, we are, we are already lost. We, we hear the sound of a, of a voice we associate with, with someone from our past and you know, or, or the sight of someone we associate with our past in difficult ways. And in moments, we can feel so filled with aversion. I mean, as we've, we've, as we've looked here at the whole kind of contemplation of Vedana, we, we begin to see how much of our day is just filled with this movement towards the pleasant, the movement away from the unpleasant. It, sometimes it's startling. It feels almost shocking how much of our lives is filled in this filled with this push and pull towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant and much of that can feel to be really just so lacking in choice and freedom you know we're walking down a road before we even realize we're at a crossroads there's a wonderful tibetan a quote from the tibetan tradition uh, from patro rinpoche he says, used well, used wisely. This mind, this body is our raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this mind, this body ties us to suffering, to samsara. This mind, this body does the bidding of the skillful and the unskillful, the liberating and the unliberating. The very first step on the path of liberating, I would say, the very first step of mindfulness, isn't it, is that we're really beginning to, to learn how to cultivate that space, that pause between stimulus and response. It's the very first step of beginning to live a, a more awake life rather than an unconscious life. Because it, it's probably evident to us all that our places of greater suffering are our places of greatest unconsciousness. This is where we find ourselves struggling the most. And that, that space that we can cultivate between stimulus and response, we, we can only cultivate it just now, not in another moment, you know, not in some better future moment or better future set of conditions. Our capacity to learn how to rest in that space, to really know that there can be a space between stimulus and response, brings us to the cross, brings the crossroads of every moment into visibility, into somewhere there is a choice. I, I think the greatest gift that people discover in this practice and indeed discover in, in more contemporary mindfulness teachings. It is about having the power to choose, having the power to choose what we attend to and how we attend to it. That feels something quite remarkable. You know, in this moment, I can choose to attend to my knee. I, I can choose to attend to, to seeing you. 
I can choose to attend to what's going on in my mind. This is actually a remarkable gift. Perhaps it doesn't seem so spectacular to you. But when most people live like a sea anemone that's getting tickled every moment and closing down with every tickle, actually this actually does really feel like quite, quite amazing. We can choose, it's a liberation when we can choose to walk pathways that lead to the end of sorrow and distress rather than pathways that create and recreate distress. And this is not easy. There's a, there's a wonderful couple of lines in the Dhammapada, one of the earliest collections of teachings of the Buddha, where, where the Buddha says, it is not difficult for, li- for us to live in a way that is harmful to us and others. Isn't that true? Doesn't take much effort, does it, to ruminate? You know, it doesn't take much effort to get irritated. You know, it doesn't take much effort to sort of obsess or or be reactive. You know, it's really pretty easy, isn't it? Not amazing. Doesn't take much effort to be lost in thought. But as you've all experienced here, it's far more challenging, as the Buddha says, for us to live in a way that is beneficial to ourselves and others. Because that is really swimming against the tide, the current of habit, you know, that keeps us moving into those patterns and those ways of being, indeed, that are easy for us to access because they've been accessed so many times before. So you think about cultivating this space between stimulus and response. It's a lot of what we've been doing here over these days. We're slowing down here. Slowing down not only the body, we're beginning to slow down some of those, those patterns inwardly. And this is a training for our lives. And it's not because there is something intrinsically valuable in slowness. We, we know this. I mean, we've probably, oh no, we can be just as mindless going slowly as going quickly. You know, this is not sort of some sort of magical formula. But the value in beginning to slow down is is the way in which we're beginning to be able to move into a more intentional life, guided by intention, rather than by, by reactivity. A life where we're cultivating that space between the stimulus and the response so we begin to have choices and begin to see those crossroads and and what it is that leads us to walk down particular pathways, even when we sometimes know those pathways aren't particularly conducive to our well-being. It's no doubt evident to us all that in the times of greatest difficulty in our life, you know, when we're facing the most challenge, where the times that are most painful or most fraught, these are the moments when we are most prone to lose sight of that space between stimulus and response. In the times of greatest difficulty, it doesn't occur to us often that stillness might be the greatest refuge and the place of greatest responsiveness. Instead, in, that, in the most difficult times, we tend to speed up. You know, we tend to speed up in our wishes to fix, to, to find strategies, to avoid, to, or, or simply to be reactive. 
And we see that whether it's difficulties in relationship to people that we care about or whether it's difficulties in relationship to our own bodies and minds. Sometimes it feels, I think in those moments, like it's almost we can't bear the affliction. You know, or, or we can't bear the, the rawness of the moment or the adversity. So we move so quickly into, into fear, into blame, into despair, into anger. Yet these are the times that is actually most, most crucial for us to find that space, to know that we stand at a crossroads and that there may be a choice other than becoming part of the affliction we are already reacting to. The Dalai Lama speaks of uh, his meeting with a very uh, frail and elderly monk who was actually imprisoned and tortured and abused for many years. And eventually he, he found a way to escape and he ended up in Dharamsala in India where the Dalai Lama lives. And the Dalai Lama asked this elderly monk, he, he said, you know, what were the times of greatest danger for you? And this old monk, you know, by the way, he was not a saint, he was, you know, he's an elderly monk. He said, he answered, he says, the times of greatest danger for me were the times when I was most at risk of losing compassion for my jailers. It's quite a remarkable answer, don't you think? In his life of struggle and so much difficulty, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, as my sufferings mounted, I soon realized there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in the struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. The Buddha proposed a formula that we've touched upon a couple of times to understand the pathways that are open to us as we stand at these crossroads in our life between, between stimulus and response. And these are, these are good formulas to actually learn and to memorize and not as a piece of information ticking over in our minds, but as something that we actually apply to our own experience and to see if this is true for us and to see what it offers to us, this formula. We've touched on it already. What we contact, we feel. What we feel, we respond to. You know, as human beings, we are touched deeply by the lovely and the unlovely. And when there is no mindfulness, there is a reactive process that gets set in motion, that happens actually so quickly, it almost feels like it leaves us breathless. 
you know, what we contact, we feel, what we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we think about, what we think about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes a shape of our mind, and the shape of our mind becomes a shape of our world. If we are sufficiently present in that space between stimulus and response, we are still going to be touched deeply by the lovely and the unlovely. But a different process can, be, can happen. We will still contact. There will still be contact. We will still feel. We will feel and we will perceive. But what we perceive, we can reflect upon. Rather than proliferate about and dwell upon and identify with, what we, what we contact, feel, perceive, we can reflect upon. And what we reflect upon, we can find an appropriate response to. So simply a different pathway. It's a wonderful poem, if I can find it. It's a poem called Allow by Donna Faltz. She says, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. In the space between stimulus and response we, lies not only our freedom and growth, but also our lack of freedom. It's where the shape of our mind and really the shape of our world is determined. And this, this is the mind we live in and live with. This is the world that is determined here, is the world we live in and live with. And if we can begin to appreciate the power of that space, then we begin to intentionally explore how we might just cultivate that pause, to, to know that without it, we invariably find ourselves hostage to the world of conditions and equally to the world of our own reactivity. And that can feel such a helpless feeling, you know, to be blown about, to be pushed and pulled, overwhelmed by our reactivity. It's a world that rarely serves us well. It's a way of being that rarely serves us well and very rarely serves those in the world around us very well. Intentionally cultivating that space begins with our, 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 a really deep curiosity and a really deep interest at what happens around our sense doors. Hmm? Now, traditionally, the Buddha portrayed the sense doors as the op five open windows and the do door of a house. 
The eyes see, the ears hear, the nose smells, the tongue tastes, the body senses, and the mind, which is the sixth sense door, often represented by the, the door in this house. Now, through the windows and the doors of the house, of course, what flows all of the sensory impressions that we received, touched by the world around us, within us. The sensory impressions, they flow in and, the, and they register. They register. They, 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 they make an imprint on consciousness. And through the windows and the door of the house flows out our responses, our reactions, that imprint on the world around us. So, so get that image, you know, flowing in through the sense doors and from within the sense door of the mind is this world of sensory impression. And flowing out through the sense doors is our world, our inner world, however it is. Mindfulness sits on the windowsill. Mindfulness sits on the ledge, uh, the step of the door. This is where mindfulness sits. This is what we're doing, is to kind of place mindfulness at that intersection. Now, the Buddha talks a lot about, uh, gives an ongoing encouragement, actually, to guard the sense doors, to practice restraint at the sense doors. Hardly encouraged in our culture, by the way. You know, where we're actually much more encouraged to be, you know, really beggars at the sense doors in some ways, you know. But, the, but it really encourages to, to be mindful at the sense doors and to practice restraint. This is, by the way, not a prescription for, for dissociation, for distancing, for being defensive or disconnection. It's not an encouragement to shut down or to desensitize. In fact, it's the opposite of all of this. It's the encouragement. This is where we can begin to cultivate that space between stimulus and response. This is where our growth, our power to choose, actually begins. It's an encouragement. This restraint of the sense does it. On one hand, it's an encouragement to protect the well-being of our own hearts. Um, but it's also an encouragement to protect the well-being of the world. You know, we, we've talked about how mindfulness really holds this element of protective awareness, you know, not defensive, but, you know, that image of the gatekeeper at the gates of the city, you know, you know, really practicing some discernment, inviting into the city everything that is intent on, on serving the city well, um, but actually not giving a free pass to everything that seeks to harm the city. You know, it's not giving a free pass to the vandals, you know. Come on in, you know, just rampage through the city, you know. Wreak destruction, you know, tear it apart. It's an interesting, it's an interesting metaphor, this. Because it's learning to protect the sense doors as a way of creating space, as a way of creating some pause that enables us to engage with wise and compassion, an appropriate response. And it's rooted in discernment because it's also protecting the world from what flows out from the city, you know, what flows out from the sensors. 
this discernment element is so important in mindfulness. I think, you know, people talk so much, you know, about, you know, the, the painfulness of that kind of inner critic, inner judge voice, you know, and, and yet we can become so uh, a kind of allergic to even this word judgment. We, we, we actually don't discern for ourselves the difference between judgment and discernment. You know, discernment is crucial in this path. It is discernment that links mindfulness with wise effort. It's discernment that lives, links mindfulness and our capacity to respond skillfully. It's an indispensable element of this path. And discernment is all about, it's not about right and wrong, good and bad. You know, discernment is actually our capacity to begin to see quite honestly and quite clearly in ourselves, what it is that leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress. It's that simple, you know? It's becoming intimate enough with our own minds and our own hearts and the way that they move that we begin to see what leads to distress and what leads to its end. This is where then mindfulness is hooked up with wise response by that quality of discernment. My goodness me, if mindfulness was just about watching, quite frankly, I'd give it up in a moment. In a, the world's not much helped by my ability to watch. You know? My, the world's not much helped by my ability to observe. You know, imagine walking outside and see someone, you know, beating up another yogi, you know, and you walk by and say, seeing, seeing. <laughs> Very helpful, very helpful, isn't it? It's actually bringing in that quality of discernment that allows us to respond. It protects the mind from the surges of our own reactivity and that so quickly happens and it protects the world. So on a retreat here, what we do is actually we, we slow down because we, here we begin to get a microcosmic view of how we operate in the rest of our lives. Please never think that you've got a special meditation mind, you know, that you unpacked from your suitcase, you know, seven days ago. This is a mind you have out there, by the way. You know, it's not a different one. This is a little bit raw, you know, it's a little bit kind of uncamouflaged, we might say. So sometimes it's a little bit more startling. Huh? And, and because here we, we begin to see that these kind of patterns, you know, so you know, how quickly we, we want to move past stimulus in, into, into fixing it, you know? You know, you've noticed a changing baden of the weather pattern, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, you know, how quickly we're a little cool, and where is my blanket, you know? It's not like, do I have a pause and actually see how I am with that coolness? In. You, know, you know, we feel the itch and we're scratching. Do we have a little pause and say, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. You know, we see that thought arising from the past, you know, and do we have a little pause and say, hmm, I wonder what this is all about, or what is this? Or how quickly we are, we are actually jumping in. Now, much of this, of course, sounds pretty benign, you know, and it, it is really, you know, none of these events are particularly earth-shattering, really, and, of course, nobody here is doing any of them. But we can sense how, how really little space there is between stimulus and response, and seemingly little choice, and how that plays out in our life, you know. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, somehow my... Um, 
my uh, my telephone number, which is unlisted, got sold somehow to a group of a company of cold callers who you know, call me on a very regular basis um, uh, to tell me that my computer is broken and they really do need access to it, you know. Uh, you know, I, I can be a pretty patient person a lot of times, you know, but, you know, after about six calls in one day, you know, I'm feeling kind of... You know, it, it's, uh, it takes some restraint, shall we say, um, but don't we see that, you know, how quickly we want to move, you know, you, you, watch the news, you know, or pick up a newspaper and how quickly the mind is moving into its views, moving into its opinions, into its condemnation. Um, you know, try it out with your partner. Have you ever found yourself, you know, that most people's partners have at least one irritating condition. <laughs> My partner's irritating condition is he always puts dirty teaspoons down on white Countertops. <laughs> I do. I do a lot of scrubbing. You know, I do a lot of cleaning. You know, a lot of cleanup. And then, and then sometimes, you know, you get. Sometimes you just have a little bit sort of low mood or something, or you're a little tired. You know, and don't the words just jump out of your mouth before you even knew they were there? You know, and it's usually preceded by the word or somewhere in the sentence lives the word again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> if we are going to have any power, we need to have choice. If we're going to have freedom, we need to reclaim that space between stimulus and response. Because when there is a space, no matter how small it is, we can begin to care. We can begin to care not only for the stimulus, but also for the surges of reactivity and emotion that begin to move us. We can begin to feel the movement of fear, of anger, of frustration, despair. We can know and we can care and we can accept and we can choose how we respond, how we care for all of this. We can actually see sometimes, you know, there's that pathway isn't there, of feeding the anxiety, feeding the impatience, feeding the anger with, with our thoughts and our judgments, with more aversion, more blame. We know we can strike out. We know we can run from the world. And it's really challenging to rest in that space because that space doesn't feel restful. In it. Because in that space, when the stimulus comes, we can feel the push and the pull of our reactivity. And at times, you know, really all that we have to hold on to is just an awareness of a single breath or an awareness of our body just touching the ground. A single intention to be present, to choose not to engage in destructive action. This is not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not blissful. It's challenging at times, it's absolutely exhausting. But it's here we begin to have a taste, I think, of freedom. And it's not just the freedom from the grip of destructive reactions, it's the freedom to, you know, the freedom to care, the freedom to give, the freedom to attend, the freedom to participate. You know, we, we live in, in very difficult times, I think. You know, I, I think probably many times in history people have said the same thing, you know, that we live in very, very, very difficult times. And, you know, sometimes in these difficult times we can, we can feel quite despairing. 
You know, we can even sometimes feel that our, our faith in the goodness of human beings somewhat shaken. You know, I, I know, for example, after our referendum, you know, the sh- sudden rise in hate crimes was appalling. You know, and you look at this and you think, you know, where, where is the goodness, you know? Is there some core of goodness that can be relied upon? You know, you can feel your sort of faith in humanity somewhat shaking. But we need to remember in these times and to really stay close, actually, to the preciousness of this teaching that points towards freedom. To know the world doesn't need more anger, it doesn't need more fear, it doesn't need more despair, more greed. And to actually know this in our bones... And there's something very profound, I think, in this teaching that reminds us over and over again that I can't make the world and I can't make others to be the person of the world that I I want them to be. And I know there are limits to my ability to change the course of another person's mind. I know that only lies in their hands. Just as we know that no matter how much someone cares for us and loves us, it's really only we who have the power to, to change the course of our own mind. That someone else cannot do this for us. But we also know we can be aware and actually hold in our hands how we respond and in moments whether we choose powerlessness or power, whether we choose imprisonment or freedom. I mean, I think we all know how important it is for us to stand on the ground of courage, you know, to stand on the ground of integrity, to stand on the ground of compassion, because it's here that I think skillful action and responsiveness can arise and grow. And it's not that we never feel anger. It's not that we never feel distress or, or feel fear or despair. I think not to, do would, not to do so would be in some ways strangely dissociated. But we can choose, actually, notice what path we are feeding and also knowing that whatever we feed will grow. It's a simple truth, isn't it? Whatever we feed will grow. I mean, I, I, I think it's important, you know, I think in these times it's sometimes important to remind ourselves something that I find very helpful is actually the Bodhisattva vow, strange as that might sound, you know. This vow of compassion, this commitment to compassion. There's many translations of this, but this is one. It's as though the many beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Though greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly, I vow to end them. Though the path is vast and fathomless, I vow to understand it. Though liberation is beyond attainment, I vow to embody it fully. I find these words myself very powerful because they talk about commitments. They talk about commitments, and they talk about commitments, I think, that are, are not idealized commitments. I, I, th- I find them somehow, somehow very livable, you know, because these are commitments that actually teach us or show us a way about how to navigate our way through difficult times and how to navigate our way through a life and a world, both inwardly and outwardly, that can feel so so challenging, so laced with with conflict and, and division and ill will. 
And you know, when we hear these these commitments, they, they just sound huge and impossible, don't they? Hmm? Though greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly, I vow to end them. It's quite a task. Hmm? And and we hear them, we think, well, oh no, this is impossible. You know, this is for so like like for Buddhas, this is for, for like super beings, you know, or this is way, way off in the horizon for me. But actually, you know, what we remember is that the size of the undertaking is only ever equal to the size of the moment. You know, we do not cultivate tomorrow's compassion or tomorrow's courage, you know, or, or tomorrow's steadiness or stillness. It is only can be here in that space, actually, between stimulus and response. And there's a very big difference between commitment and feeling. It may feel absolutely impossible to bring greed, hatred, and ignorance to end, but you know we act as if it's possible to do so. It's how we choose to live. You know? It may seem impossible to, to, to uh, follow the path, but we act as if it is possible to do so. And that is the choice that we make and the commitment we make. It's almost like committing ourselves to, to liberate in the moment. Committing ourselves to liberate in the moment. We may feel that the path is too difficult for us. And yet every moment that we actually find that inner commitment to, to stillness, to listening, to, to wisdom, we're walking the path of the moment. You know? We're committing ourselves to, to embodied values. Not good ideas. Every moment we, we act with integrity, every moment we respond with compassion, we're committing ourselves to embodied values. And this is what this path of freedom is really concerned with. To stillness, to listening, to insight, to compassion. And we walk that path every moment of our lives as a possibility. This is what really places us as, as really conscious beings, I think, participating in this world, free to care, free to respond. You know, a friend of ours you know, once wrote, he says, you know, we cannot seek awakening for our, only for ourselves, that we can only participate in the awakening of the world. You know, we, we have our practice, what happens for us and what happens in us. In the, in the silence, in the solitude of a retreat, we begin to sense that, that those possibilities of, of choosing our growth and our freedom and our responses. We have a, a path that's really concerned with, with living a very conscious, awake and embodied life where everything matters. You know, not the big events, you know, not the big moments, not the big breakthroughs, but where everything matters, where the small moments and the great moments are worthy of equal attending to, equal responsiveness. This path is not always about the dramatic moments or the great acts. I think it's really much more, you know, we live our life in the details. I think it's, it's much more about how we are present in the quiet, small moments where we really have the power to choose. Again, uh, Tibetan teacher says, you know, do not take lightly the small moments 
of losing our way, losing our integrity and our courage, believing they can do no harm. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain. Do not take lightly the small good deeds and acts, believing they can hardly matter or make a difference. For drops of water, one by one, in time can make an ocean. We think about how this really applies to what we're doing here, because this is where we're actually learning how to live our lives. You know, this is not some sort of bubble, dissociated bubble. You know, people talk about the real world. You know, this is the real world. You know, the world that we live in is the world that is born every moment of our clarity and understanding or our confusion. And that doesn't matter where we are placed geographically. This is the world that we live in. And we begin to see you know, how, you know, how the Buddha was so interested, so dedicated to understanding the architecture of this world, understanding the architecture of suffering. And he says, you know, we learn this and we, we study this and we understand it in the cl- this classroom of our bodies, feelings, minds, thoughts, process. This is where we learn to live a real world. Not, not a world that is fabricated by our reactivity and our beliefs and our conclusions and our fears. This is actually the world that is actual. The world that can be received, that can be responded to, as we understand how our world is being built and constructed moment to moment. The crossroads are many, you know. They are here in every moment. You know, we do not have to look very far for the crossroads that really hold that, that uh, our, our growth and our freedom through our power to choose. And that power to choose is really born of how, how awake we can actually be in these moments that really do matter. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. If we take just a moment quietly together. Thank you for your attention. We have a walking period now before the last. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.